You know, most most houses are presented three to six months ahead of time. Got it. Okay, so you've got time to go and look at them. Um, one thing I cannot stress enough is look at the property. Okay. Mm. Now that property might be in shambles or whatever else. And you need to think of whether or not you have the skill set or your people that work with you have the skill set to fix it up. Um, but I've gone to places where it said it's a three bedroom home and it was a vacant land. And wow. when I turned around and queried the uh, county about it, they're like, oh yeah, that burned down 10 months ago. But see, wow. they don't keep up updating the records because it's going to sale. So, you know, mm. look, look at the, look, make sure there's a house, <laughs> make sure. It, Seriously. It's, you yeah. Know, you know, but I also look at the neighborhood, you know, mm. um, once you've been dealing with it for a while, you understand what the neighborhood is. Um, work with the real estate agent, find out what the median um, uh, rental rates are for the area for a property that's fixed up, you know, just do, you know, some basic due diligence of knowing the type of property you're going to get when you get into it. Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we have Richard Thayer on the line. And this is going to be a really, really great interview, guys, because I first talked to Richard uh, at a event called Fun Launch Live. I met him towards like late at night, midnight, and we just started talking about affordable housing. And I was just so inspired by how much he knew in this space. And his strategy is incredible. So Without further ado, Richard, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Hey, I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much. Hey, man, I you just shared, you just dropped so many gems that night, and you were blowing my mind away. And maybe let's just take it from the beginning, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and how did you even get into real estate investing? Well, uh, so I'm dating myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> luckily, I sat behind this wall so that way it, it all looks brown, but it's gray. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, um, back in the 80s, I actually worked with a property management company and uh, we were really managing uh, Section 8 housing, uh, you know, affordable housing. Of course, we managed, you know, some that were $10,000 a month back in the 80s. I mean, we all different types of properties. But um, the interesting side of it was, is I got into it because I realized there was a way I could actually help people uh, doing little things, just seeing a smile on somebody's face or, you know, a thank you card, you know, or, you know, a, a couple of times I had handmade things presented to me. So, I mean, it, it was it was nice. It, it, it makes you feel good in your heart. I absolutely love that. So you start as a property manager and what, what happened? Did you turn into an investor from there? Did, did something click and you said, you know what? I need to start owning my own properties. What was kind of going through your mindset at that point in time? Well, in all honesty, it wasn't that I just said, you know, I'm going to be like super investor or anything like that. Um, I was actually <laughs> approached by individuals that said, Hey, you seem to know something about this. If we give you money, how about you turn around and help us, you know, buy what we need, get, get involved, you know, the whole nine yards. So I did, did a tremendous amount of syndication. Um, you know, that, that uh, hamster wheel that a lot of us are familiar with in regards to syndication, <laughs> that, you know, every deal is uh, you got to find the money or it could be a, a mm -hmm. large deal, it could be a small deal, whatever else. And I started making money that way. But I started building relationships with different states in regards to finding available funds that were there for everybody, but nobody took advantage of. And teaching people that the stigma of what low income um, is just wrong. And it's been wrong since mm -hmm. the 80s when I started. Oh, there you have it. I just, I just told you how long I've been doing this. So anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, one of those, it's just one of those things that uh, um, people just don't appreciate that it's quite lucrative truly helping somebody and you feel good doing it. That is so cool, man. And I think and I love that you already brought up the whole stigma issue. That's why you and I really connected when we first were talking to each other. Um, so I love that you were already busting that myth in the 80s because uh, my parents came in the late 70s from China. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were just hardworking individuals looking for a place, looking for a roof over their heads. What has been your experience? Like, what were your learning lessons in the beginning? Like, were, did, were people even scaring you away with a stigma or because you were in a property management, you already understood like, hey, this is my tenant base. The, where mm -hmm. is all this garbage that people are talking about? What, what were you experiencing well, in that point in time? Well, you know, and I've seen both sides of the coin. 
So I've seen some, uh, mm-hmm. basically run into some apartments that, um, I felt like I needed to use a can of raid on me when I walked out. Um, you know, and I understand why, okay, that gets the stigma there. Then I've got into other apartments that were immaculate. I mean, it just absolutely clean to people who are just kind and nice, you know, and they're doing their best to survive. And then I realized, well, you know, there's a difference. What you have to do is you have to find the people that truly need help and the truly mm. people that truly want help. So, you know, when I started digging into Section 8, um, before we you know, do anything with credits, um, when I started digging into Section 8, I started realizing that there's a waiting list. There's a waiting list for a reason. There, there's a list of people that really need help. Okay. And then there's mm-hmm. a list of, well, I qualify. If I don't have to pay rent, yeah, man, I got more money I can put on my car or whatever. Uh, you know the difference between the people. And, and it's, one of those, it's one of those things that I was able to start spotting a lot of that. And I started building relationships with housing development areas, with builders, with uh, other property management companies, finding those spots that either A, could be revitalized or B, mm-hmm. that just needed to expand and grow so they can take care of more people. Got it. I mean, this is the perfect segue. Um, so let's maybe talk about it. And we, our audience members, they range from single mom and pop um, small landlord investors all the way to the multifamily construction development side. Could you help us educate, just educate us? Like how do you look for deals now and what types of properties are you looking for specifically? It really, it really depends on the state. And the reason why I say that is because every Mm -hmm. state has their own uh, HUD office, which is a federal program, but there's state regulations in regards to how that money and how that program is used. So it depends, depends on where the properties are located. Um, I love doing mobile homes. Um, it, okay, it's it. an inexpensive way of getting a complete house. Um, I also uh, uh, thoroughly enjoy working with developers, um, using tax credit, applying for you know, uh, basically money from the government um, or working with some of the nonprofit organizations to um, you know, build in these affordable housing areas. Um, so that, you know, it, it really depends. I started one house at a time. And, you know, I learned this neat thing back when I was doing property management about tax deeds. And uh, I, boy, I took it and ran with it. And so uh, um, that's how I got started. And then I started realizing, well, I could do this with multifamily. I can do the same thing. Uh, I can start bridging the gap between, you know, a lot of investors might go up to the fourplex because they feel comfortable because it's still considered residential. And then you have some of the guys that are like, oh yeah, I want, I want the 500 unit, you know, <laughs> that type of a deal. Um, but really, um, when I started looking at the small to medium multifamily, which is anywhere from like five to 35, 40 units, mm-hmm. um, the market for them was smaller. There was less people involved. And a lot of times they already had some kind of program involved. Um, they already might already had some section eight. Maybe they failed an inspection um, or there are certain things that they needed to upgrade or whatever else. So um, I started targeting them um, and then mobile homes. So mobile homes weren't always allowed by HUD uh, for a long time. They were denied um, mm-hmm. special access to them to being getting special types of funding or whatever. But, you know, um, now there's uh, specific guidelines depending upon the state of how to do them now. So um, the state's opening up because of the demand, because of the need. Um, it, it's it, it's just so much there. Got it. Maybe let, let me unpack a little bit first. All right, so you first said tax deeds. Can you explain to the audience, like what, what do you mean by tax deeds? What does that even mean? So it's a tax sale. So, uh, you know, you heard a lot of people go online and like, you know, you can buy these tax liens make 18% mm. interest and you definitely can make money doing that. And, and it's a long-term investment. Uh, um, where, where we met, I talked to a, a couple of individuals that they, that's all they did was tax liens. We'd go to these tax sales and buy the lien and they get paid back by the County guaranteed. I mean, good stuff, but a tax deed is different. That means you're actually buying the home when you catch the taxes up. And so, mm. so so how much, how much can, you know, will you buy a house from it? It really depends on, you know, where the neighborhood is. It depends on the state. It depends on the amenities around it, 
It depends on if it's part of a bigger neighborhood. Uh, it, there's all different kinds. But the range, like I said, the range has been um, normally from just a few thousand dollars um, up to about twenty, twenty-five thousand. I normally don't go over that. Wow. So these are properties. Um, I'm assuming you, by tax you mean property taxes, right? People have been delinquent mm -hmm. under property taxes. Any other sort yep. of taxes that might fill like cause these properties to be listed on the auction? Uh, well, the, the county auctions that, that I actually go to are pr primarily that. Now, understand that you might buy a house at a tax auction for $3,000 and you're like, yeah, ruler of the world, you know. But really <laughs> what it comes down to is, you know, you might have a $700 water and sewer bill that they never paid. So, you know, they don't yeah. share that with you. But that's one thing that goes along with it. So you got to be prepared for that. Um, but most of the time, it has to do with county taxes. Or, or state Got taxes. It. They haven't paid them. And um, a lot of times it has to do with death in the family. It could be mm. part of an investment portfolio that somebody was managing and somebody bought the portfolio out and they let the other ones go to the wayside. Um, you know, it's an inexpensive way. Um, you know, if a house needs a lot of work, you know, if it's distressed or whatever else, you know, it's one thing to put a sale, for sale sign up. And it's another thing to just let it go. So it just depends on how the investor handles a lot of that. But um, oh. you can go into some of these tax sales with some, some of the medium to you know, larger cities and, you know, there'd be five, 600 houses for sale that, you know, you get the deeds with some are very cheap and some of them are in, you know, one to $200,000, depending on the size of the house. Got it. So you are certainly picking up distressed properties in these scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. And even yes. though the auction will tell you. Hey, this this property has three thousand property tax lien or twenty five thousand. You don't know what's underneath that. It's kind of like a mystery box okay. where you open it up, you're like, oh, a thousand dollar water bill. So that's a downside. Are there any other downsides yeah, to downside. the strategy? And those, and those are really few and far between. They really Got are. Because most know. of the time, when they when they quit paying taxes, they're normally not there. Um, the uh, homeowners and other else. So most of the time, the water and sewer get cut off anyway. So if you have a bill, it's going to be minimal, you know, $100, $150 tops, you know, and, and that's just kind of a given. But, you know, mm -hmm. after you go to this tax deed or, you know, this tax deed sale and you bid on a house and you, and, you, and you buy it, then for the next, you know, basically 60 to 90 days, you're not allowed to touch it because you're waiting for a sheriff's deed to be delivered to you. And once you receive that sheriff's deed, then you take that deed down to the uh, um, your favorite uh, title insurance company, have them run it, clear it, make sure there's nothing else on it, the whole nine yards. And then you get a new deed and you do it. You just take the house and, and grow it up from there. Got it. And I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask you, why do you have to wait 60 to 90 days after you buy the tax deed? Um, normally because that's how long it takes the sheriff's department to actually go to the properties and re-verify that nobody's in there. Mm. Um, if nobody is in there, it is your responsibility to, to go through the legal process to have them evicted. Um, I would say 95% of the time, the houses that I look at, um, there's nobody in there or, you know, they've been boarded up. I've had some of them that, um, actually had, uh, uh, people living in it, but not like a family or whatever else, you, you know, just different uh, single people living on their own or whatever else would stop by and, and crash and you'd find mattresses here and there. <laughs> so, wow. But, so, but, you know, I mean, but it, does you know, it happen? Does the owner have any claim to the tax deed? Like they say, oh no, I went to the auction. Can I go there and kind of pay it off really quick and reclaim title to that uh -oh. deed at all? If the owner wants to make sure that that doesn't happen 30 days before the sale, uh, before the posted tax sale, all taxes have to be caught up plus penalties. Oh, okay. And the Got owner it. can keep the property. But most of the time, these properties aren't just because they didn't pay the taxes for a year. A lot of times this has seven years on it before they've actually removed, gone through the process to get something there. Um, so a lot of times nobody is going to come and try to pay those taxes to get it back unless it's a valuable property, you know, like it's tied Got up it. in a, uh, um, uh, you know, like a death or whatever. Um, and it's sitting there for quite a while and nobody knows who to pay and or whatever else. And the family's fighting over it or whatever else, you know, I've actually seen some, you know, multi-million dollar properties go to tax deed sales because nobody was wow. paying anything on it. Um, multi-million dollar properties they, they, yeah and they get paid 
you know, either by the family right before the sale or people walk away, you know, multi buying a multi-million dollar property with, you know, eighty, ninety thousand dollars And this is an auction, right? So people are bidding on these properties. Okay. You okay, got it. Uh, so what is your recommendation? So you, you, you're, are you running comps like on your phone as you are, as they're like bringing these properties up? Like, cause I can imagine how frantic it is. Imagine someone's new. It's like, Oh, I got to go comp yeah. properties as I'm, as these addresses are getting, getting up there. Like, what does that process look like for you when you, when you approach so it? So with me, you know, most, most <laughs> houses are presented three to six months ahead of time. Got it. Okay. So you got time to go and look at them. Um, one thing I cannot stress enough is look at the property. Okay. Mm. Now that property might be in shambles or whatever else. And you need to think of whether or not you have the skill set or your people that work with you have the skill set to fix it up. Um, but I've gone to places where it said it's a three bedroom home and it was a vacant land. And wow. when I turn around and queried the uh, county about it, they're like, oh yeah, that burned down two months ago. But see, wow. they don't keep updating the records because it's going to sale. So, you know, mm. look, look at the, look, make sure there's a house, <laughs> make sure. It, Seriously. You know, yeah. You know, but I also look at the neighborhood, you know, mm. um, once you've been dealing with it for a while, you understand what the neighborhood is, um, work with the real estate agent, find out what the median um, uh, rental rates are for the area for a property that's fixed up, you know, just do, you know, some basic due diligence of knowing the type of property you're going to get when you get into it. So you, you mentioned the word neighborhood, and I think this is like always about location, location, location. What, what type of neighbors do you look for? Because I think you specialize in, you know, the tenant base. And I'm curious, like, do you look for schools, walkability? Like, how do you determine your neighborhoods that you want to target for your buy box? So I, I actually look for older neighborhoods. And the reason why I say older is because I have older ten or older neighbors, okay, mm, older tenants it. or whatever else. Um, a lot of times people aren't going to act up if mom is in the house and, and is going to find out about it. <laughs> okay, so you know, <laughs> like I said it's it's a closer net group. Um, but Got I it. bought houses out in the middle of the country, you know, just out in wow. the sticks, you know, and because they were just part of the deal and they didn't have a neighbor close by. So it, it really depends on what you're looking for. I bought properties that people said oh man well that that's a that's a that's a drug area mm. but i bought so many houses in that area it wasn't when i got done so wow. you know it's one of those that's you turning around that, communities that yeah, is so that's cool the community man. And, and the community every time will get behind you every time they'll come and knock on they'll see you working on a house and they'll come and knock on the door saying what can we do to help that is so cool. Or, hey, you know, how, how should I fix my front porch so it looks good as yours? I mean, you name it, the community gets behind it. So the, a depressed area isn't depressed financially. A lot of times it's depressed emotionally by the people that live there. Mm, that is, wow, that is so cool, man. I think this is really what it boils down to is like you are not only providing a safe, secure, quality home, for folks, mm -hmm. you are also changing the whole facade of the neighborhood by leading by example, Richard. That is so right. cool, dude. That yeah, is amazing. Well, like, talk about life-changing stuff. Well, if you remember what I told you that one night, now granted, we were both tired. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I, I told you, I said, Kent, as long as you remember that you put the family first, put the mm -hmm. people first, the money will come rushing in. But when you start taking care of the people at the people level, then, you know, you're always going to have renters. They're going to stay with you because you took care of them. They're going to recommend their friends, their families. They're going to talk good about you to their neighborhood communities that they, that they might belong to or to civic centers or to elderly homes or whatever. Mm -hmm. The idea behind it is, is now it's so rare to take care of people when somebody actually does. It's really something to talk about. Yeah, so Richard, this is really cool. I, I bet the audience out there now is thinking like, well, there's no way I can buy a whole neighborhood. That's unrealistic, um, right? They're going to be like, um, I can only buy one at a time. How can I do it one at a time? So maybe you could tell us a little bit, spread some wisdom here. Like okay, you must so, have some learning lessons. What, are you trying yeah, to buy one so, at a time, a couple at a time? What's your strategy there? So when I first started, it was definitely one at a time. Mm -hmm. And basically I found counties, um, 
around me that had a tax sale and that were staggered tax sales. So I always found a place that I could buy a house um, one a month, you know, after I started rolling and started understanding what the refinancing meant and what I could pull out mm-hmm. and how I could actually increase my syndication and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone to tax sales and bought 30 houses in the same neighborhood. Whoa, because it was 30? All, it was all, um, yeah, because it was all owned by the same group. So what happened is, is you know, they all went up. And so we just turned around and just started buying them. So now granted, that takes a little bit of capital. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's the syndication deal is I provided the knowledge and, and the supply chain and they provided the funding for it. And I think this is a great lesson for people, right? It's like, get started with just one of them because how did Richard get to a point where he can buy 30? You showed your trackers like, hey, look, I've done the hard work. I've done it one by one. I've had some mistakes. Mm-hmm. I've learned from some of these rehab stuff. I know how to protect the home against squatters. I know how to tax deed process works. Let me go raise capital now for 30 of these mm-hmm. at a time. Yeah, and I think so that's so cool. Yeah, the, my biggest lesson that I have learned is, you know, A, understand the people, um, mm-hmm. but B, also at the same time, do your due diligence. The first time you stop doing due diligence on the property, on the people, on, on the neighborhood, on the city or whatever else, uh, the, that's when you start losing your money. So, you know, yeah. take a look at it. Some, some cities, you might get really great deals on, well, all the industries move out of that city. So, you know, that it's in a slump. You might be able to buy the, the property relatively inexpensive, but where are they going to work? Yeah, you know, so it, it's little things like that. You just you just got to take the time and analyze it. And if it takes you, you know, six months to analyze the city, so be it. But at mm-hmm. least that when you go to that tax auction, you know for a fact that when you buy a house, you know that you're going to be able to find a renter for it. You know you're going to be able to uh, get it refinanced because it's in a neighborhood that's going to be good or whatever else. Got it. Got it. And, and how competitive are these auctions now, Richard? Like there must be other investors that are here, right? Or wh- what do you think? What's the level of competition? So it really depends on the inventory. Ah. <laughs> so um, the, the auctions that you have with the larger cities, you will definitely have mm-hmm. far more people there um, bidding. Uh, some of the counties that are farther away, what I do is I look at HUD and I turn around and see what the Section 8 voucher values are for that county. And I know that if I put so much money into it and I refinance it and I pull money out of it, um, that that voucher, you know, plus, you know, the average is 30 percent is added to it. And I know for a fact that, you know, the rent's going to get paid. So, you know, so you don't have to be in a big city. So throw that idea out your head. You don't have to do that. It can actually be out in the suburbs in the country. Um, and nobody knows that it's a Section 8. Um, the house is taken care of. You've got the right tenants mm-hmm. in it. You've done your screening, the whole nine yards. It, it, it's just a great way to make money. I absolutely love that. So you, we talked about the tax deed acquisition strategy already. Uh, what, what would you say like your proportion of your acquisition is like tax deeds compared to mobile homes versus new builds? Or are you doing a little bit of everything at once? Like what does that look like for you right now acquiring all these deals? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an all the above. So <laughs> it really, it really, what do you have time? <laughs> well, I don't, that's the reason why I had to, we had to postpone this before. <laughs> so uh, um, in all honesty, uh, there are certain cities, certain States um, that I'm interested in buying in. I'm, I'm selective okay. in regards to that. It has to hit my numbers. Got it. Um, I also make sure that there are certain counties um, within a state that hit my numbers. Um, you know, a case in point, you know, like here in Virginia, you know, so in Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, a tax voucher um, or not a tax voucher, but a Section 8 voucher for a three bedroom mm-hmm. is $2,700 a month. Wow. But in other high. Counties, in other, yeah. In other counties, it's only $980 a month. So, Oof. you know, there is a variance there. And so you have to understand the state that you're actually buying in. Don't don't think they're all the same. The counties actually have to dictate based off median value. Got it. So you recommend maybe looking at uh, HUDs like fair market rents or the Section 8 vouchers, comparing that to the median price value of homes in a specific mm-hmm. area, and then try to find that ratio, right? If that, that's like the right. tactical step you would recommend for yep. folks to get. Yep. I love Absolutely. that. Yeah. And so I listeners, always... make sure you do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... 
one of the main things that I try to focus on is making sure that if I get a house and I put money into it and I mm. refi it, okay, what, what, what am I going to end up with? So a lot of people are familiar with the, the you know, the Burr method, you know, buying, yes. uh, rehab, rent, rinse, repeat, you know, whatever. Yep. <laughs> refi, repeat. Sorry, that's what right. All the are. You're good. <laughs> I thought one of them had Richard in there, but I didn't know. So I just thought <laughs> So, uh, but um, the next step is, you know, you're actually, this is actually a buy and hold process. So now do you buy and hold forever? Maybe not. Let's say that, you know, you turn around and you have 10 homes um, that are all section eight. They're all turning good income. Okay. That you've Mm -hmm. already refinanced. You've already pulled cash out. Okay. You've got a certain amount of equity in every one of the homes. Uh, you can sell those homes as a package. Happens all the time. Um, right. You know, granted, if you get up to like 30 or 40 homes, you know, that's a package, an investor waiting to buy. Those are turnkey solutions. And there's investors all day long that are interested in that. Why? Because all the work is done. So basically all they're doing is they're buying your equity. They're not buying basically the whole property. So I know that sounds odd when I say that is granted they're taking the loans over that you've refinanced with, but the only value you have left into that property is the equity that's left over. So if you refinance a house and I'd say on average, I do 70% mm-hmm. um, loan to value off of an ARV, you know, you know, after re, or yep. after rehabilitation value, Repair value. Yeah. Um, I, I get left with a fair chunk of money. If I have 10 of those, I can go back to the bank and say, hey, look at all this equity I got built up. Okay. I don't want to pay your normal rate anymore. I need it at a quarter or lower or, you know, or I need some different terms or I need you to push out the first payment for a while. Or, you know what? I need a signature loan so I can actually do work on it. See, now you're starting to swing some power with your local banks. Mm -hmm. I love credit unions. Um, Credit unions will work with you 10 times more than a bank will. Um, but sometimes in smaller communities, everybody knows that bank. And I've been into some communities that actually had 500 people in the whole town, a little tiny town, but it had two things. It had a bank and a gas station. <laughs> so, wow, you know, they intentionally did business with the bank. Uh, so that way the bank could say, oh, yeah, well, he, he banks here. Oh, yeah, it's a good customer, whatever else. And they would turn around and help me get into other properties, especially if they had REO or whatever else. Got it. And this is such a cool takeaway because as Richard demonstrated, it actually gets easier as you get bigger uh, almost because you get to have some negotiating power, bring down your rates, make the numbers even make even more sense. And now you really are truly getting some powerful cash flow here. So maybe now that we talked a lot about the process, we talked about the burr, maybe we could actually talk about numbers from a deal that you've done, Richard, so we can kind of make things real. I'm not sure. You said you had a spreadsheet up already. Yeah. Why why don't you share it? And just for the audience, while uh, Richard is pulling that up, you can always come on to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Kent underscore heap to actually see uh, what Richard is going to bring up onto the screen and actually walk through an example of a deal that he has done. Uh, But that's just one way that we want to kind of bring some value to folks. And we'll add, even if we don't bring it up and you don't have time, we'll talk through the spreadsheet. We'll verbalize everything that we're talking through. So, um, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I am. Um, I have to tell my Mac that it's okay that I'm not some kind of uh, heinous criminal to try to share something. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> You're good, man. <laughs> so uh, um, let me find. Do, 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 do. There we go. Let's see if this works. Do you guys see anything? Uh, not yet. Are you clicking the present button on the yeah. StreamYard thing? Yeah, it's telling me uh, that I need to assign more permissions to it. You know, I love oh. Macs. They run forever, you know, uh, <laughs> you set them on fire. They keep running, you know, you, you, you just love that. But the downside of that is, is uh, 
Um, what, administrator privileges for everything. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and, or a blood sample, one of the two. Um, okay, I thought I did this, so we're going to give this a try. Screen recording, Google Chrome is enabled. All right, well. Well, I was trying to share it, but it's telling me I need to reboot. So uh, no, that's okay. We could, we could just we could just verbalize it if you want. Okay, I'll just go or... through it. So um, yeah. basically, th this is a deal that I did um, actually just a few years ago. Um, but the interesting side of that was is it was how I turned around and actually resyndicated it. So I, you know, I'm talking about buying houses at tax auctions. I bought this house for eighty two hundred dollars. Eighty two hundred. Eighty two hundred. It was a three bedroom, one bath house. So it cost me eighty two hundred bucks. It's actually it was eighty one hundred, but I had to pay a hundred dollars for them to register it with the the sheriff. So anyway, <laughs> eighty two hundred bucks. Okay, um, is that including the tax lien on it already, or no? Yeah, that's that's the whole shoot and match. That's me getting wow. the sheriff's deed in my hand. Got it. So um. The interesting part about that is this house didn't have any busted up walls. Okay. It had a couple of broken windows, but for the most part, it was in good shape. Had to straighten up the front porch a little bit. Um, all the appliances were, you know, obviously taken and, uh, mm. um, you know, used elsewhere. But altogether, I had $21,000 or $21, in rehab costs. Now, with that $21,000 rehab costs, the mortgage to refinance it after I got it all fixed up, I had $2,300 into it. So altogether, I had $31,500 that I went to Mr. Syndicator, uh, my partner that said, hey, Richard, I got cash. Okay. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, he helped me buy it, paid for everything, got everything processed. So anyway, we got uh, appraised afterwards. Um, and it appraised out at $130,000. Wow. Right. So I, yeah. So what I did is, is I went and um, did a refinance. I did a 70% loan to value on it and, mm -hmm. and pulled $91,000 out. Out of that 91000 of course, you take the 31000 out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you paid your partner, right? Out. The 31500 yeah, the three the payback to partner. Right. Now, on account that it's a syndication deal, what I did is I took the rest of that money and as their profit, I gave them $59,500. So if this if this was a fund, okay, the investors um, would be able to share um, the profit together, but on account it was a single uh, syndicator mm -hmm. and this is a deal that I worked out with them. Um, that basically gave him a hundred and fifty-three percent return. Wow! Or fifty-three percent return on cash on cash. So either way, any way you look at it. So I don't know about That's you, but an amazing return. Amazing. So, but here, here's the neat part. Okay, I that on account that I did a seventy percent loan to value, I still had thirty-nine thousand dollars in equity off of one property. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so let's break it down. So pity or, you know, payment insurance taxes or payment interest tax and insurance was $875 a month. I think it was $875.01, but I dropped the penny. So property management um, fees for somebody to watch it for me was 10%, you know, so $87.50 a month. And then property maintenance, um, I figured in $112 a month. And the reason why I say that is, is because sometimes um, you want to make sure that a everything is working. You might get a call, even though it's just been re, uh, refurbished or, or what have you, and you have new appliances. You still might have some other expenses that you didn't take into consideration. Hey, the dryer isn't venting correctly, and I might need somebody to go in there and fix that. So, I added $112, $112 a month to it just to make sure. So my monthly expense was a thousand and seventy-four dollars and fifty cents. So I rented it for $1,400. So with the rent of being $1,400, I went to section eight and I said, hey guys, I got another house. And they're like, well, no, sir, there. sure is good to see you. 
we'll come down and give it an inspection. Um, I never saw them, but yet they inspected it. So anyway, we're like, fine. So anyway, um, the voucher for that county for a three bedroom was $980 a month. Okay. Because they expected the tenant to pay 30% over and above voucher amount for their rent. Okay. So the tenant had to come up with $420 a month for rent. So you think about that. So I'm getting $980 put directly into my account and then a check from the tenant. And I use turbo tenant at times. I mean, there's just different ones, but I also do automatic draws. But anyway, I get $420 a month from the tenant. So that basically puts in my pocket net, in my pocket, $325 and 50 cents a month or $3,900 a year. That's on one house. And I don't want people to miss it. Richard has no money in this deal now because he has taken out right. all the money. Right. I have this nothing. This is how you guys do it. This I, is how you I do absolutely it. Absolutely have nothing. So the interesting thing about it is, is that the way I write up my syndications is that if we exercise equity, I get a piece of the equity that remains. So in this house, there's thirty nine thousand dollars of equity. So I worked out a deal that I get twenty five percent of all equity. So this house here is, is a good deal. So, but the interesting thing is, is when you turn around and you think about $3,906 a month for one house. So you got, let's say you do 10 of them that are just like that because it's easy to do. Okay. How much are you doing now a month? <laughs> you saying, yeah, $39,000 a month you're doing. And I mean, granted, that's your gross, but that 30, 39. So, you know, and then you got a hundred houses. I mean, it's just, that's how you scale. You scale by having the additional ones or whatever else. But this was section eight. So a lot of people are, one of the main questions that I get is, is, you know, yeah, but you don't know who you're going to get. And that's not true. You can scan section eight people. <laughs> you can definitely go down the list. You can take a look. You do background checks on them. Um, you know, like I said, they're not going to have a three-bedroom voucher unless they have enough uh, kids or family members to be able to give them that three-bedroom. Um, you are not required to keep a three-bedroom. I could turn around and take a two-bedroom voucher for that house. I could also turn around on and say, hey, you know what? I have a two-bedroom, but I'll take your three-bedroom voucher if I get the right tenant in there after I scan them. I love elderly people. I mean, uh, uh, they're the best renters in the world and they always go out of their way to make your place look better. Um, also, at the same time, is people with disabilities. So that's a classification of HUD that a lot of people don't know. You know, they think of, you know, ADA, they think, oh my God, I got to build a wheelchair ramp. Well, <laughs> that's just one piece of it. But there's additional funds set aside by HUD just to set those houses up for these, for the people that have disabilities. You know, so it's it's all in how you look at it. It's um, oh, Richard, I didn't know that. I'm actually building a wheelchair it, ramp for one of my tenants right now. She is also an amputee, so I'm literally putting the wheelchair ramp in right now, trying to get it scheduled. And how, I didn't know there were funds. She? Yeah, how um, old is she? She's like fifty. Um, yeah, so go to your local head office. Okay, and say, mm -hmm. I have a person with disabilities that's under the age of 62. And, and there's actually forms there that you can actually fill out to help with getting that ramp in your house um, ADA compliant. Such as you might have an old sink that the pipes are exposed underneath it, you know, the drain and you see the yeah, hot yeah, water. Yeah. Well, part of ADA or the American with Disabilities Act says those have to be covered. You know, same thing with doorways being a certain size or whatever else. They can actually give you money to make your house ADA compliant, including that. Wow. So See, I, I'm so glad you different... came onto this podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, there's also, so much money. <laughs> but there's also, depending upon, you know, like being an amputee, especially if, if they're veterans, there's all kinds of funds out there to help a vet who put the time and effort in, obviously, you know, to help a vet turn around and make sure that their quality of life is good. They put forth everything they had. Why can't you do that for them? So there's funds. And, and it's not just from HUD. There's tons and tons of nonprofit organizations. You just have mm -hmm. to search for them. 
that actually have funds available. And maybe not all the time. Maybe it's quarterly. Maybe it's half a year. Maybe you have yeah. to get on a waiting list to actually receive funds or whatever. But you're going to use mm -hmm. it sooner or later down the road. But this is the other thing that I try to do is try to pick your tenant, you know, your class of tenant. Um, I, I, I enjoy elderly. Um, I enjoy doing, you know, elderly communities, even though I don't call it a community. But I try, you know, taking care of them because they're so far that I've seen in a lot of cases that they've been a, a higher quality tenant. Of course, I've had families of six be some of the best tenants I ever had, too. So that doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> I'm just going by, I yeah. guess, me because I'm old. <laughs> And I think this is just where we got to bust some myths again, right? I mean, anywhere, anytime in an Airbnb or in any sort of sized house, you could potentially pick a bad tenant, no matter how well they did on the interview or the screening. Now, obviously, this is not investment advice. It's not legal advice. We're not soliciting any funds for investing with us. This is for education and information only right. and entertainment only. Uh, but this is really, really cool because what Richard is doing now is not only are we getting guaranteed rent from the government? You as a landlord, and this is what makes affordable housing so great, is that you get to choose who you want to help. Like if you mm -hmm. want to dedicate housing towards the veterans, great. If you want to dedicate towards people with disabilities, Richard just sh dropped an amazing gem that I didn't even know about. And now I can go to the local HUD office and say, hey, what kind of funding is available for me to provide a wheelchair ramp for my tenant? Because guess what? Mm -hmm. I, I bet there's not that many houses in the city or state that actually has those wheelchair ramps. So chances mm -hmm. are your vacancy expense is going to be a little bit lower too. So it makes sense numbers wise and you get to help people. That is so cool. That's what I was saying before. Never take your eye off of helping people. You know, if you mm -hmm. focus on the people, you'll be successful. That's how it works. So, you know, and it's important to remember too that, you know, um, in some of the larger um, multifamilies, you know, they have certain deals where they allocate so many people or so many apartments or so many units, you know, for low income and the rest of it is, is regular. But they don't realize that there's actually benefits of making a larger percentage um, more available for uh, low income. Um, some of those larger percentages could be tax credit credits. Some of them, again, can be um, additional funds by other organizations you know, to be able to support you with, you know, maybe doing some rehab or adding community centers or whatever else. So, but that's one thing that uh, um, as a story that, you know, I like sharing is I went to a nonprofit organization before and said, hey, I have all these tenants and everybody's nonprofit. You know, everybody's happy. Everything's going good. But I would really like to have a place for them to be able to get together. Now, me, and this is one of the things that I learned, you know, me, I was thinking that way they could play bingo on Sunday night. <laughs> and, and anyway, I was quickly reminded, well, no, it's not a bingo place. It's going to be called, a, you know, a, a community center. It's like, oh, OK, fine. Whatever. <laughs> OK, so, you know, so much for me being a redneck. So I was like, fine, that's, you know, I'll go ahead and do that. Um, it took me a while. But, you know, after a year, I got enough money to build that without anything out of my pocket. Oh, wow. That is so cool, man. Like, so it that's... happens. It's, the funds are there. And you just got to ask. Sometimes if you never ask, you never know what's available. Well, and I think well, this if you is don't ask, asking. the answers. Yeah. And, and, and it's kind of funny. <laughs> but if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Mm -hmm. That's so, right. That, that's the idea. So, you know, what's it going to hurt to ask? But most of the time, I mean, I encourage you, call your local HUD office up. Find mm -hmm. out people that are delegated to your county, you know, talk to them saying, hey, I'm interested in doing this. What do you recommend? How should I get started? You know, are there any pro projects that I can get involved with? You name it. And uh, they want you to provide housing. And if you call them and say, totally. I'm an investor, I want to be able to start providing, you know, affordable housing. They're going to take care of you. They're going to help you. Absolutely. I mean, they'll see through your BS if you're in it just for the money. But if you're in it to help people, they will absolutely help you for sure. Um, so we talked about two things. I want to make sure I cover these tactical steps for folks. Um, you mentioned you're able to screen tenants. Any sort of like red flags that you think have jumped out at you that you would recommend for people to avoid or implement in their tenant screening process? Um, I look at job history. Um, I definitely look at that. I look at um, if they live close by, you know, um, 
currently, you know, what is drive by the house, see what it looks like, you know, doesn't hurt to look. So, you know, just little things like that. Um, definitely, you know, if you see um, a lot of things that said uh, divorce on it or currently in lieu of divorce or whatever else on the credit report, then, you know, they're going to have some struggles and, and strife. It doesn't mean that they're a bad, pe bad person, but it's just different things that I watch out for. Got it. Understood. So let's get to into property management, man, because I think this is one of the it's so crucial to the success of every real estate investor. And I, and I remember you telling me about how you screen them. I would really love it for you to share like one, how do you pick them? And then two, how do you vet them? What kind of questions are you asking them that our listeners can kind of take away and like implement into their own process so they can pick apart the bad ones? Yeah. So you can go and actually look at lists. So um, it's, it's kind of funny that, and, and I checked again today just to make sure that nothing has changed, but uh, you know, like in the state of Virginia, um, they don't even say how long they're backlogged anymore. They just say that the list has been turned off until further notice because there's so many people waiting. Uh, some places have five months waiting lists, which are short. Uh, some places have 11 months, eight to 10, that's kind of normal. But anyway, you can turn around and actually do a voucher search, um, you know, for a specific size of property or whatever else. And it will give you that information and you can actually turn around and look at it. It just depends on the county. It depends on where you're at. But I I look for elderly people. I look for old names. <laughs> people are like, well, Richard, what's an old name? You know, uh, somebody named Jared Wilson. You, you know what I'm saying? You know. Yeah, it, it's just it's it's one of those names that you think, OK, well, that might be older because I don't know any new kids being called Gerald now, you know. So, all right. You know, it's just little things like that. And you learn these nuances as you go. You know, I'm called Richard. How many Richards do you know? You know, so. So it's just, uh, it's well, just one of those. <laughs> yeah. So how about property management companies? Like, how are you screening your property management companies and vetting them and asking the questions to make sure they're not just full of fluff that they're actually going to do what they're going to say they're going to do and take care of your properties. Can you shed some light on that? I, yeah. I, I, I spend the day with them. Sometimes two days. <laughs> I make them what, take what? me to their properties. Oh, and okay. So if they get out to and, and they get out and, and try to do the fluff and say hi to everybody or whatever else, if people know their name, okay, that means that they've been spending time there. But I also watch if there's a cigarette butt, okay, on the sidewalk. Now, granted, this might be trivial, but if I see them bend down and pick that up and throw it away, that tells me that they care for that property. Now, most wow. property management companies don't own the property, but they care about the people and what the property looks like. So I watch for stuff like that. I watch for them to turn around and look up at the lights and see if the light is flickering. I, I go to um, make sure that they do nighttime checks. You know, how often do you do a nighttime drive-by to make sure that all the nighttime lights are working for my tenants? You know, are, are the lights on? Are they off? You know, are some of them flickering? You know, because, you know, some of the new ones, that's what they do. They flicker when it's almost time to change them. You know, so it's little things like that. You know, is things, are curbs painted, you know, for emergency areas, for, you know, handicap parking? You know, is the paint up? Is the sign up? Is it at least 48 inches off the ground to satisfy code? I mean, all different kinds of things. You know, I want to know, are you taking care of the property or are you taking care of your percentage that you're going to get for taking care of the property? There's a big difference there. Wow. Your, so your criteria is very different. Like sometimes I heard people, they're like, oh, I want to make sure they're scalable. I want to make sure there's a portal for the, for the tenants to submit. And they, didn't, they don't mention any of these things that you're talking about. Because people yeah, can just share with you. Go ahead. Yeah. So there's all kinds of portals that are out there that are available that do great. You know, that do backgrounds, that, that process credit card, do ACH transfers for you or whatever else. I don't necessarily use that so much anymore because it's so prevalent. You know, most of the time they're more than happy to tell me that's what they have. But the scalability isn't necessarily um the system that they have on the back end, mm -hmm. the scalability is how well they take care of their customer. You know, yes. and in that case, every person that rents from me is my customer. So therefore, when I go to talk to them, I am the customer. And so if I feel like a tenant isn't going to be taken care of one way or the other, or there could be 
issues with something, I bring it up and say, how are we going to handle that? Then I give them scenarios that have happened to me. Okay. You know, I, old lady, in, you know, in unit 7A, she calls and she has a pipe that bursts from the, the place above it. Who does she call? Oh, she calls this 800 number. Oh, that's fantastic. What's the response time? Mm, well, they yeah, never give me the response time. Well, they have to respond within so many minutes. Yeah, responding to a phone call and actually showing up as two different animals. So how, how soon is somebody going to be there fixing that for her? So that way, you know, she might be susceptible to, you know, lung problems or mold or whatever. You don't, you don't know, but you want to take care of it immediately. So I, I throw scenarios like that into it. And then I also find out, what do you do for your tenants on Thanksgiving? What are you oh. doing for them on Christmas? What do you do for them on Easter, 4th of July? You know, these are major holidays that, you know, most of them won't work. So if they're not working, what are you going to do to make their life better? I mean, you know, turkeys are cheap. Hams are cheap. Uh, chocolate rabbits, cheap. Whatever you want to do. You know what I'm but it, it's also to the fact that, you know, what are you doing to help them have a better quality of their life? And what happens is, is, is your tenants will not only will they stay with you, uh, mm -hmm. through thick and thin, but they're going to go out of their way to take care of you. They're going to take care of the property better. They're going to take care of, of each other. If you get more community involvement, um, mm -hmm. they recommend, uh, you know, you as a landlord, but also your company as a company that's willing to go out of their way to buy a house for somebody to make sure that they have a place to live. I mean, that says a lot. So you Absolutely. Know, it, 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 it's the involvement of your tenant. I think this is so important to emphasize for folks. It's like, Richard, you're going one level deeper on all these screening steps. You're not just taking it at face value. Like, oh, we have a portal. We have uh, standard operating procedures. Well, let's mm -hmm. see it actually happen. Do your people actually listen to this piece of paper or is it just saved on the Google Drive that no one ever looks at? And you actually right. test whether or not they care about those people. And I think people forget that this is like a customer service business. It's not just like real estate. You, you buy a property and you put someone in there. You got to take care of them. And you might yeah, be able to exactly. screen a little bit on vacancy, but Richard is the one that's actually going to spending the time, spending the day with someone that's actually in the field and actually seeing how they actually handle and go about their day. That is yeah, such I, a great job, man. I actually get to know the name of the, of, of the people on the front not just the manager, but the people collecting rents or the people taking the complaints or the people filing a maintenance requests or whatever else. Um, talk to them, let them know, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in, in hiring this company. What should I watch out for? You know, like I said, there's a certain amount of due diligence that um, will basically seem unfruitful, but you know, I'm really big at watching how people respond. And if they're shifting in their seat and they're trying to look around and they're not, you can tell they're uncomfortable, but they're saying, yeah, this is a great company. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, verbal language is only 10% of communication. So <laughs> that, that, that told me everything I needed to hear. So what a dead giveaway so there. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so it's obviously happened, right? Oh, I even brought it up. <laughs> that is smart. Well, well Richard, how many, what does your portfolio look like and how many property management companies do you have to work with now? Like what does your portfolio look like? Just kind of sharing some general numbers with the folks there. And I think people really appreciate yeah, do, like so what it takes. So project management companies. I actually only have a couple. I do a lot of my own project management now, um, you know, hire the staff and, and actually process it that way. Um, it depends on where they're at, whatever. Um, there's some uh, project management companies that are very, very good. But, you know, the quick and easiest way to find out, you know, how good they are is go on Facebook and, you know, every city has an investors group and just say, who do you recommend as a property management company? Why? And people will tell you, yeah, don't use such and such, but I use them. They work pretty good. Yeah, I second that. They're pretty good at it or whatever else. And then start your due diligence with that person. Wow. Well, that was easy. It's like, you mean that's all it takes, Richard, to find a property management well, company? Wow. Well, that's, it, that gets you started, but the due diligence yes. is still up to you. That's exactly Remember, right. Remember, that final and, decision that you're making for your tenants is yours. So yeah. you, you better make a good one. 
Yeah. So what markets are you in currently, Richard? Like what, what states are you in? What counties are you in? So where are you Virginia, investing? Yeah. So by the end of this year, I should be in Virginia, North Carolina, Kansas, Florida, Texas, and, and California. Oh, wow. That's, that's a good spread. And do you have only one property management company per state or do you have like a few per state? Was that it it, it depends you? on how many units are actually there. It really does. Got Sometimes it. it's only, you know, like one or two um, smaller properties, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe it's only a couple hundred doors. You know, it, it just depends. It depends on the quality that I'm going to get. I would rather have extra property managers than I would unhappy tenants. Absolutely. What? So I think we're getting to a point of the of the interview that we typically ask this question for everybody. Uh, I would love to hear, like, why do you think the lack of affordable housing supply, the lack of supply of affordable housing is so hard to solve for? We'd love to kind of hear your thoughts and what you think might be a possible solution to that. Yeah. So what I encourage people to do is go to the uh, NLIHC dot org or the national low income housing coalition dot org. Remember I gave you that website the first time we talked. Um, and dig in there and, and just take a look at the numbers. Um, 7.3 million houses um, were were needed at the end of last year. And that's for people at or below poverty line. So think about that. So you and I could be building houses just as fast as we can until we die and we're not going to put a dent in it. I mean, it's going to take everybody. The second side of that is, is that every state has funds set aside, not just for HUD, but there's other community um, groups. There's other organizations, even in the uh, national coalition. Uh, They even have funds set aside that you can actually petition and request. I mean, there, there's there's money out there to basically get a return on your investment. So if we're talking business, then the amount of money that you put in and then you receive a big fat check um, for funding for doing a low income house. Guess what? You, you know, your cash on cash value is better. Your IRR is going to be better. Um, your advantage, your, your investors, your or whoever else is your partners or whatever else are going to be better. And you're going to be better because you're going to have that money crunch. So you're going to spend more time with your tenant. That is such a great and staggering number. 7.3 million houses. And I think this is why we started this podcast, Richard, and bring guests on like you. We, we recognize how large of a problem it is. And it really takes everyone to kind of pitch into even get to make a dent on this. You need all the single mom and pop landlords to get involved. You need private money lenders. You need private money investors just into a fund. You need multifamily construction. It's just such a dearth of supply out there that you really need everybody. And and what's really funny about that is you talk about people being involved. Um, HUD receives money state level, depending upon the amount of need. So the more people that go there and say, hey, I want to be an investor. Okay. Um, you know, I see that you have tax credits for, you know, building properties. I see you do section eight for a couple of houses I might already own, whatever else, how do I get involved? Again, that increases the need for that state. And therefore that state in time will actually receive more money because there's more involvement and that's involvement from the investors from the tenants, from everybody. And I think that's so important, man. It just it just takes a lot of people to get started. And you might not feel the impact now, but 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, for the next generation, like we're going to leave the next generation in a much better spot than we are today uh, in terms of right. affordability and for housing. So this has been an amazing conversation, Richard. Like, thank you. I can't thank you enough, man. Seriously, uh, thank you. If, if it weren't for people like you, uh, my parents would have never had a home to kind of raise me and my brother in without people like right. you, I would never have had the life I am today. So seriously, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Like we just need way more people like yourself. So thank you so much for what you do. And Hey, if the audience members want to get in touch with you, like where can they contact you? Don't give your phone number unless you really are that adventurous. <laughs> hey, well, I don't answer my phone half the time now. Are you? <laughs> um, actually it's, it's our there at pm.me got it awesome right there Richard, this is pm.me that's it 
Awesome. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes as well. And Richard, thank you so much for, for sharing your experience with the audience, sharing your wisdom, those little tactical steps. That's what's going to drive and drive the change. Someone's going to be like, oh, I learned that from Richard. I want to put that. I'm going to start doing that now. And I think that's going to yeah. be one of the game changers for a lot of people. Yeah, I do a lot of consulting, you know, a lot of, I help a lot of people, you know, I, I don't, it, it's one of those things that I'd rather help the greater good, you know, so I do a lot of consulting, a little bit of, you know, phone time, try to get people on the right path. But, you know, like I said, you know, give me a call. Let me see how I can help you. Love it. All right. Thank you. And we're going to be out. Thank you so much, everyone.